0: Hello and welcome to Immuno Tea, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Dungan.
1: And I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in.
0: That sounds delicious. I could do with a tea right now. But first, we're here to talk about what research is being done what new treatments we should be watching out for and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world.
1: So we've changed our format a little from the first episode. Don't ever say we don't listen to you all. A lot of you fed back and we hugely appreciate it.
0: That's right and the feedback has been that our first episode was a touch on the long side so we're making it a little bit shorter. We're picturing you all on your bikes and buses and trains because we're told that's exactly where you are right now on your commute so hopefully you'll have time to listen to the whole episode in one go.
1: We're going to be interviewing one wonderful contributor per episode, but we'll still be getting some of the biggest names in immunology talking about cutting edge research and innovation to bring you all the latest news and keep you up to date on the world of laboratory and clinical immunology.
0: And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us at ImmunoT, don't forget that's T-E-A.
1: Now let's get started and move on to our guest for the day. We've got a great show for you. We're going to chat to Professor Jonathan Horahan. Jonathan graduated from Trinity College Dublin in 1987 and undertook his higher training in Southampton and London, UK. He's now Professor of Paediatrics in the Royal College of Surgeons, Ireland, and Consultant Paediatrician in the Children's Hospital Ireland, Temple Street.
0: Jonathan's work is incredibly exciting. He's one of the world's leading paediatric allergists and is at the forefront of recent and ongoing studies of oral and epicutaneous immunotherapy for peanut allergy. Jonathan, you are very welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for asking me.
0: Jonathan, can we start a bit more general maybe? Can you talk to us about the basic concept behind a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction? So say I'm peanut allergic, what happens if I have a spoon of peanut butter, for
2: instance? Okay, well, um, the traditional language of type 1, as you probably all know, is um, archaic now or historical. So we have, it's mainly based on mechanisms rather than group descriptions like that. So it's IgE-mediated mast cell activation and uh, discharge so, that uh, antibody cross linking two IgE molecules on the outside of a mast cell will cause degranulation and release of vasoactive mediators, causing the minor signs of urticaria and some angioedema and the clinical symptom of itching, but also then causing the more severe symptoms of vasodilation and leakage. So, we get hypovolemia and then we get mucous hypersecretion and bronchospasm in the airway. So. We go from the simple minor features which get a lot of attention to the kind of silent, quiet, wheezing child who's having anaphylaxis and nobody's realising.
1: Thank you so much for explaining that so well. Can we talk a little bit about the change in trends of food allergy, such as the increasing prevalence over the last few decades in both developed and developing countries, as well as the younger age of onset, and what some of the reasons behind that might be?
2: Yeah, I think um, if we're talking specifically or exclusively about peanut allergies, generally the case that the first reactions are in the first year or two of life. It's rare for children over the age of three to encounter peanut for the first time. And as we've moved into the era of earlier life introduction, we're now seeing six- and five-month-old children having their first allergic reactions to peanut when first exposed orally. Whether they've been uh, exposed cutaneously or not is the one of the big issues and we've had the dual hit hypothesis whether they've been transcutaneously sensitized and then uh, in the absence of oral tolerance induction that's caused uh, them to become clinically sensitized so that's been going on you know i think the first surge of peanut allergy was in the early 90s and i got involved at that time as a young fellow and we were in the era then of strict allergen avoidance and i think we would all know by now that that was probably an erroneous rather clinically-based hope rather than evidence-based expectation that if you didn't bump into something, you weren't likely to become allergic to it. It now seems that the key is to ensure that your first exposure is early and oral and often, and that may prevent uh, peanut allergy. But we're left now with having had that sort of 25 years of strict avoidance and uh, escalating cases, we now have huge numbers of peanut allergic older children and young adults And um, they're ripe for treatment if we can get a treatment that works for them, whereas the younger children and babies who haven't yet been born, we do have an evidence grade one, level one, grade A evidence-based program to try and eliminate the sensitization that we talked about earlier. So immunotherapy is going to be the last in the sequence of efforts to prevent, mitigate, and I guess cure peanut allergy going from early life introduction through to immunotherapy of established cases
0: it's really interesting what you're saying there about the the way things were in the 90s and how the paradigm has shifted an awful lot can you give us an idea of first of all how early we should be introducing peanut to children these days and i'm also wondering when you're mentioning that the paradigm has shifted now is there less allergy in much younger children these days
2: the first, first one is, is we think the allergenic foods, the, the evidence is based on the LEAP study, which is one of the most important pieces of research done in pediatrics overall, let alone pediatric allergy in the last 30 years. Uh, it's up there with the description of Kawasaki's disease and uh, Bruton's a It's that important and field changing. And w- it seems now that the earlier you introduce it, as soon as the child can safely eat it, the lower the rate of uh, allergy in that population is. So children uh, in Ireland have been weaned as young as 12 weeks in the past, but with the focus now on prolonging breastfeeding for as long as possible, children are commonly weaned between five and six months or seven months. And we want peanut in as soon as possible in that window. And with each each month that passes before peanut is introduced, the rate of allergy in that group goes up. So time is is genuinely of the essence. And we are, I think we are seeing, there's been papers published in Australia and we've had information published just last week that we now have more nut allergic two-year-olds than peanut allergic individuals when it used to be the other way around by a factor of between five and 10. So it looks like the peanut message has got out that you need to introduce it. But what hadn't got out until we showed in this study is that you need to keep it in your diet as well. You need, the immunomodulation is not a one-off, like having a, uh, your appendix out, it's every day or as part of your regular rotation of foods through your diet, the allergenic foods have to be included and maintained. So our, our data showed that in our research group called the CORAL study, the children who had repeatedly been told by us to keep peanut in their diet had lower rates than a historical cohort where they had been told to eat it but not to maintain it. So a little bit often is much better immunologically than a large bit once you can get what's called high dose tolerance where you can kind of obliterate your immune activity and you get tachyphylaxis if you like. Uh, You know, you do that with drug desensitization. But a large dose that's not followed up by frequent other dosing is sensitizing, whereas small doses that are given frequently are tolerizing. And that's been known for at least 50 years in the field of mouse oral tolerance work. It just hadn't got to the clinical allergy field because allergy grew out of not really out of immunology, it grew out of respiratory medicine, really, rather than immunology, which was which then, in, at least in children, became largely focused on autoimmunity and um, immunodeficiency. And allergy kind of sneaked into the clinics via the respiratory services. Quick historical lesson for you there. You probably you probably didn't know it. You probably don't need it, but there you go. (laughs) No,
1: that's great. And and it seems like we're making some real progress with peanut allergy. Can you talk to us a little bit about the relevance of testing for peanut components?
2: Peanut components. uh, It depends what part of the world you're in. In North America and northwestern Europe, Arah2 is the dominant protein. And while there is a preference now, or there's evidence to show that it's better than the peanut-specific IgE. I think that might be the case in expert hands who are looking for subtleties of difference or subtle differences but i don't think it's of much meaningful help to your average practitioner to know whether they're rh2 high compared to total peanut high Uh, whereas in other parts of the world southern europe africa and um, the middle east different proteins rh8 and 9 are more common because the route of sensitization may be through primary pollen related rather than through um, epicutaneous h 2 exposure. So it depends where you are and what you're looking for. We do ROH2 really because we're in our tertiary clinic, we're really looking for people who other people may have thought are peanut allergic, but we might be, if you like, brave or rash enough to want to challenge somebody that other people wouldn't. So we would go the extra hurdle to see if there's other information that'll inform what we need to do. And in older children who are presenting for the first time teenagers, we would routinely do the recombinants because it's unusual to present in northwestern Europe at that age. So there might be a primary aeroallergen-based sensitization in anybody over the age of 10 presenting for the first time with peanut allergy. We would go that route. But at our age, too, dominant peanut allergy is our bread and butter, literally.
0: So you actually mentioned the, the idea of, of challenging children. But I suppose before you challenge them, they have to present to you. Maybe you could give us a little idea of how you would assess a child that's referred to you with, I suppose, a potential peanut allergy. So, what it would look like to someone who hasn't seen it yet, what tests you might do, and, and what weight you'd put in them.
2: Well, I have to say, the diagnosis of peanut allergy is not rocket science. Usually, the child has been sitting in a high chair or in a buggy and has been given some peanut butter to eat, or mum has let them lick some peanut butter off their finger. And within seconds, almost usually within 10 or 30 seconds, an allergic reaction has kicked off with irritability, urticaria, angioedema. Anaphylaxis is very rare on a first exposure, so that's one of the reasons we don't advise pre screening of people before they introduce peanut, because the burst reactions are usually very mild. Um, anaphylaxis uh, is usually down to other factors rather than just the dose of peanut butter uh, in older children. So they can remember the typical history, typical resolution, or uh, medical treatment of antihistamines if available or needing to go to hospital. And then the test will be done you can take specific ig at the time it's not very useful to do skin pre-tests on the immediate day of sensitization because it may be there may be energy and uh, the test will be negative so uh, a few weeks will pass before they get a skin test or a blood test result available and then that's that we very rarely have to do a, a food challenge to make the diagnosis if there's uh unequivocal symptoms and positive tests that's all you need The positive tests, uh, food challenges are really only needed for the doubtful cases or those who have unexpectedly negative tests. Uh, Now, the tests are very useful when they're negative. They're 95% negatively predictive. So if a negative test is found in somebody with a positive history, we would challenge them because they might be in that 5%. We're looking for that tertiary bonus or dividend of people who know that. So that's what we do. Uh, Whereas with positive tests and a simple history, we would just see them every year or two and see how they get on. And so with immunotherapy as it's coming now you move from having a peanut allergy test every maybe first one then one annually for maybe one year or possibly two and then you might not need another allergy test for three to four years and then maybe five or six years after that so in young children with with peanut allergy we would let's say we pick them up at the age of 18 months they might have six appointments with us before they're 15 Whereas if we get, we're going to be coming now to the issue of oral immunotherapy and epicutaneous immunotherapy, they might have 26 visits in the first year. So there's a massive difference in how we are going to have to resource ourselves and families' expectations will have to be met in a very different way. Because you go from just avoiding peanut and carrying pens and being careful and being very worried to avoiding peanut and carrying pens and being less worried but having to go to to hospital every fortnight for updosing or checks. So it's a whole new deal.
1: That's great. Thank you. So you've alluded to immunotherapy. Let's not hold off any longer and talk about what everyone really wants to hear about. So can you talk to us a little bit about oral and epicutaneous immunotherapy?
2: Immunotherapy is really um, an immunosuppressive, but not immunodeleting treatment where sustained exposure appears to desensitize uh, individuals who have succeeded with the program sustained unresponsiveness or what used to just be called simple tolerance is not achieved by everybody and it it might depend on the duration of the maintenance treatment the dose of the maintenance dosing and their general compliance with treatment and tolerance full tolerance appears to be more easily achieved the younger you start Um, Desensitization in general appears to be more successful and less problematic the younger uh, it starts. The product for oral immunotherapy that's licensed at the moment is called Palforzi, and that's licensed between four and 17 years. And the epicutaneous studies, which were just as successful but didn't get a license for technical reasons, uh, show that a lower percentage of people get to the primary endpoint of the studies in the first year or two of treatment, but in this extended treatments of the epicutaneous treatments, as I guess the cumulative dose increases, their um, achievement of sustained response or of, of desensitization approaches that of oral immunotherapy. So it's a matter of, you might have to choose one for one patient and one for another patient. A child with eczema might not be suitable for the epicutaneous treatment, because their skin is too active immunologically. Whereas other children who are so averse to peanut, and many, many of them are, and families can't imagine having peanut in their house, they might be more suitable for the epicutaneous routes. So they've been extensively investigated with with grade three, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials based on the definitive outcome of food challenges. And the results are very impressive for both modalities. And the oral route is uh, licensed in America with that product. And in Europe, it's been used in the private sector in the UK its penetration into clinics is, has been put lower in the United States than expected, because uh, it's quite a rigorous treatment to perform. And while all those studies were going on, what, what the companies used to call homebrew immunotherapy with generic peanut flour or ground-up peanut was going ahead. So the market may not be as big for the actual product as was thought, but the market for peanut immunotherapy itself remains large. It's, just, it's a matter of whether you use licensed product or unlicensed products.
0: Can you talk to us a little bit about your findings in the Artemis trial?
2: Yeah, the Artemis trial was the uh, study mandated by the European Medicines Agency to get European data for the licensing in children. So I was the lead investigator in that, in in the study sponsored by Immune Therapeutics. And the design was largely the same as the Palforsia trial. And they were uh, screened, skin pre-tested, double-blind challenge. They had to have a reactive reactivity dose below uh, 100 milligrams, which is a very small amount of peanut. And then they were randomized to placebo or control, placebo or active treatment, and they were at a repeat challenge after a year of treatment. So it's hard work, a trial, it's hard work. Uh, there's about a 25% dropout with all these treatments due to GI effects the the rigors of being on a trial with all the paperwork, et cetera, the interference of family life. So while you might expect the rigors of that would be less in a real-world licensed product and in a post-marketing environment, but it's still a lot of visits to hospital, a lot of disruption of family life. But I think the balance of that is in these most super motivated families, it just is the deal that they want and they will do anything for it. Now, what we don't want them doing is staying on the treatment if it's not working, and we don't want them staying on the treatment if it's causing them trouble. So we do need to ask them about the symptoms about EOE, GI problems, um, have they had intercurrent anaphylaxis? We do need to caution them about taking medicines and uh, exercise and having viral infections, step downs, etc. So it's a big process to be honest. Very big process. It's not it's not one tablet and off you go. We come back to the issue of tolerance. You need small doses all the time rather than one big dose.
1: So we know that this works for children, but not for adults. But in the future, do you envision this being an option for all children and being used commonly?
2: I think it is an option for all children. And I think uh, versions of it are going to come out for the other foods, to, for other, some of the other nuts as well. But the market is clearly going to be in the, it is going to be for peanut. Is it going to get licensed for adults? I don't think it is, to be honest. I think they had their opportunity to do it and to do it for adults. Uh, And the compliance is more difficult for adults due to the disruption of family life to go through the study. And I think that will be less in real life, like for the children. But I don't think there, I think children, people who start in childhood will be able to stay on it. But I don't think there's any, any mileage in it at present as far as I can see for starting it in adults, which I think is disappointing.
0: So it's not the fact that it doesn't work in adults. It's just not licensed and probably won't take off
2: it's not licensed, but it does work, but not for everybody and it's less effective in older children, so it's likely to be still less effective in old in adults, although not not useless you know but if if it's effective in fifty percent, is that enough to make it a market i don't know i'm not involved in the commercial side of it, but you know if we go if we have the thirty years of peanut allergic children, there's an awful lot of peanut allergic adults out there. And we're now going to be seeing with the immunity or the early life introductions, the number of new cases is going to fall. So the market is in adults who for whom it is not going to go away.
0: So I suppose the big question is really, when do you think this will be licensed and used in, in Ireland?
2: I think the National Pharmacoeconomics group we're looking at at the moment, there's been a call put out in the last two weeks looking for a patient advocacy group to put the patient aspects of the program to them because they've heard from the medics and they've heard from the company and they've heard from the EMA where it's already approved by the EMA. So I think it's coming. I we, we had expected it to be here in early 2023, but I think they've put it through the full review process in Ireland. So I think there's a 180 day process still ahead. So I would say end of this year, allowing for the fact that you know, the treatment of peanut allergy is very cheap. It's don't eat peanuts. So any cost that, and then you have your epi pens, which are about a hundred or 200 euros a year. So for the pharmacoeconomics unit to measure that versus a treatment that I think the commercial rate is $4,000 or 4,000 euros a year, it doesn't look very favorable for the treatment, but that's if you just measure it versus what they're doing at the moment. But the, the dividend of this treatment is the quality of life and the safety and the socialization. And I think it's strongly in favor of treatment for the added uh, qualities, quality of added life years. And there's another term as well. I think uh, any, any cost that came in at less than $20,000 was considered worthwhile. So at $4,000, it's well ahead. But $4,000 compared to $200 in Ireland, some, some guy might not agree. But that's false economy.
1: Finally, Jonathan, what's in store for the future of peanut allergy? What should we be watching out for in the next few years? Uh,
2: I think the epicutaneous route is going to get licensed eventually. I think it's highly patient favorable. It, patients like it. Uh, it's less disruptive for them. I think we're going to see younger and younger and younger children treated. I think this uh, study is ongoing or coming out for children between one and one and four. So I think we'll have we'll have silos of treatments. The first one will be healthy maternal diet, uh, early introduction of the allergen to the foods. I, I I think it might be that the the next one might be epicutaneous treatment for the small babies, and then oral treatment for the older children. But with flips the other way for according to patient preference. I don't think we're ever going to get to parenteral treatments. I don't think injections are they didn't they've been shown not to be safe. Uh, sublingual treatment is going to come I think that's that's shown some promise in you know in uh, American studies. so I think we'll have four or five different ways of treating this and because the prevalence appears to be tailing off now that's not measured that's not measured yet, but I think these treatments will be available for a small the smaller number of people who need it who haven't got peanut into their diet safely if they follow the national guidelines of doing it as soon as possible. And it's amazing how many families come to clinic saying they never heard that from their public health nurse or their family doctor. So I'm not sure it's true that they didn't hear it, but they get bombarded with so much advice. They might have heard it, but did they listen? They're two different things, as we all know.
1: So lots of exciting stuff to come in this field. So Professor Jonathan Horhan from the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So great to hear what's coming down the line from Jonathan. I'm so interested to see where the public health measures lead us in the next 10 years. The advice to introduce peanuts as well as other allergens as early as possible and to keep them in the diet is getting out there. And Jonathan even commented on peanut allergies becoming less prevalent than even tree nut allergies in younger populations.
1: Yeah, and I think it's fascinating to think that the work being done now in immunotherapy might become standard of practice in the future for all children with peanut allergies as well as other nut allergies.
0: Just in terms of disclosures, Jonathan is a scientific board member and advisor for Immune Therapeutics and a paid speaker and investigator for DBV Technologies. Well, I guess that brings the episode to an end.
1: Yep, it's been amazing to learn so much today. Not only about what we already know about immunology, but also about where the field is potentially going.
0: Okay, well last episode it was tea facts. What have you got for me this time (laughs) round?
1: Well this week I've gone all out and I've actually got a joke for you. I'm rather proud of myself for it. Are you ready to hear it?
0: Okay, very exciting. Go on.
1: Did I tell you I was in a rap battle with a peanut recently? His allergenicity was much higher afterwards because I totally roasted him. Oh, right, I get
0: it. A good roast pun, and it's educational. Roasting peanuts will increase their allergenicity.
1: Exactly. You are welcome.
0: Okay, <laughs> I love that. That's brilliant. All right, listen, that's enough from us for today. If you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at ImmunoTpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot spelled immunotea spelled i m m u n o t e a podcast at gmail dot com, or you can tweet us at immunot. Don't forget that's t e a.
1: We're really looking forward to our next episode, where we'll be chatting to Professor Emma Morris from University College London, all about stem cell transplantation in patients with inborn errors of immunity.
0: We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Jonathan Houraghan, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. Thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next time.
1: Goodbye for now.